This world, our families, our lives are broken and messy. What if Jesus could take our failures, our pride, doubts, rebellion, shame? What if Jesus could accomplish something we never imagined? What if he could take our messes and create something astounding? Something meaningful, life-changing, beautiful. Something the world has never seen before. mentioned earlier that uh, we are starting a new series today that we've entitled A Beautiful Mess. And as our uh, other campuses and venues join us, I want to, even before I pray, just explain a little bit about the origin of that series and uh, why we're doing this, because I think you'll find this uh, encouraging. I, uh, every summer, as you guys know, I go away for a little bit of an extended time of both vacation as well as study. And part of what I'm on the hook for is to map out the whole next year of uh, preaching, the preaching calendar. And so last summer I uh, was doing that, and as I got to the very end of it, which would be this series right now, the last series before summer, I knew that we'd be looking in John 13, because we're slowly making our way through the Gospel of John amidst other series. And so John 13 is all about Jesus' last supper with the disciples in the upper room. The entire chapter is about one meal. And as I read the chapter uh, a couple times through, I kid you not, and I think this was from God, you'll see why in a minute, my immediate thought was, what a mess. What a mess, which is not what most people might think of as they're reading about the Last Supper. And the reason I thought that is because there's five themes going on in this Last Supper, the chapter, and the themes are this, forgiveness, which we're going to look at today, and then betrayal, Jesus talks about Judas's betrayal, and then glory, Jesus talks about the glory of the Father, then love, he gives us the command of love, and then the chapter ends by Jesus predicting Peter's denial. So add all that up. The five themes are forgiveness, betrayal, glory, love, denial, all mixed together in the same soup, all mixed together in the same pot. Uh, that's the Last Supper. And I thought to myself, again, if you didn't know anything more, you would just think, what a mess. Uh, but then the next thought that came to me is that in Jesus's hands, because Jesus is the one present there, it really is a beautiful mess. Because as you're going to see today, Jesus makes it very clear that he knew all that was going on. It was all under the Father's control. And even though it was very messy, um, it was a beautiful mess as the Savior was present there. And then I thought of our lives. I thought of you and me, even last summer as I was planning this. And I thought, you know, our lives can get very messy as well. And we're tempted, like when I was reading John, to say, what a mess. <laughs> It's just a mess. And yet, maybe what we can do in this series is start to allow Jesus to enter more into our world and turn our mess into a beautiful mess. And what you need to understand about that is that in keeping with John chapter 13, he didn't take away the betrayal. He didn't take away the denial. In other words, he didn't remove the mess as he doesn't remove a lot of our mess. He just enters into the mess. 
But when he does, it makes a huge difference, and it really becomes, as we've coined this series, a beautiful mess. So that's what we're going to do over the next six weeks. We're going to look at five themes amidst the messiness of our lives and see what God says to us through these themes. And I think if you hang in there with us, you're going to be ministered to in this. If your life's not a mess, then don't come back for the next six weeks. For the rest of you, no, I'm teasing. For the rest of you, Let's all bow and pray. So let's, let's enter into prayer. Father, we do thank you for the fact that even when life gets messy, and it does for all of us, that you still have a plan. And that your plan, as we're going to see, is, is something that can't be thwarted. It's something that can't be stopped because you're God and, and what you say is going to happen. So I pray, Father, that as we uh, look at these themes over the next few weeks of forgiveness, betrayal, glory, love, and even denial, that God, you would help us to make sense of our own lives and more importantly, uh, who you are and where you are in the midst of our mess. And so that's our prayer. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. So here is a, something I want to put before you as we begin our time together right now, and that is that the heart and core of the Christian truth claim is this, and that is that Jesus came to forgive us of our sin in order to bring us to God. I, I don't know why we complicate that message so much like we do, but if you go to work tomorrow, and this probably won't happen, but if you go to work tomorrow and somebody says, hey, what's the core of Christianity? I hope your answer is that the core of the Christian truth claim is that Jesus came to forgive us of our sin in order to bring us to God. I mean, that's it. Amidst all of our problems, this is what is most core and central. It is what matters most. Christians complicate that message like crazy, mind you. We go down all sort of theological side trails. We add a lot of complexity to our Christian expression by bickering over what music we should sing in church and what food or drink we should eat or not drink and what political persuasion we should have as Christians. You guys know the deal. But at the end of the day, when you cut through all the complexity that we tend to add to our faith, the heart and soul of it is this idea of forgiveness. If you don't believe me, I want to read about it in our passage before us today as we begin this six-week journey through the John chapter 13. And we're going to read the first 11 verses right now. And it's a, it's a story, an account, that I think a lot of Christians think they understand what's going on, but you're going to see in about 35 or 40 minutes, you might not. And this might be enlightening for you. So John chapter 13, we're going to read just the first 11 verses as we enter into this chapter today. And here's what it says. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wash them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For Jesus knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, as I said before we read this story here, a lot of Christians have heard this story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, but somebody came up to me after last uh, service who had grown up in the church and said, I, I, I never really understood the point of what Jesus was getting at here. So let's try to dial into that point right now. And to do so, I'm going to enter into a little bit of play acting. Now, not a lot of play acting because I can't stand pastors that are dramatic or especially pastors that sing, so I'm not going to do that. But I am going to enter into a little bit of drama right now so that we can understand uh, the story or the event here and really get what Jesus is, is trying to say. Uh, the setting here is obviously what we have come to call the Last Supper of Jesus, and it takes place in the upper room. Jesus and his disciples are now in Jerusalem on the eve of Jesus' arrest, though the disciples don't know that, and they're staying in a room that Jesus had prepared for them, an upper room, which was simply a guest room in a typical house in Jerusalem. And it's Thursday night, and Jesus and his disciples are partaking of the Passover meal a day early than the Jews usually would because Jesus knew he was going to be arrested. But John also makes it clear, and don't miss this, that Jesus also knew that the Father was in complete control. He knew where he had come from. He knew where he was going. And so Jesus was at perfect peace with all that was about to happen, Judas's betrayal, the arrest, the trial, even the crucifixion. It was all in God's plan, the entire mess. And so Jesus wants to reveal to them what is about to happen and more importantly, why. And so he decides to engage in one big cosmic object lesson. And what you need to know is that this object lesson, lesson both, both shocks and confuses the disciples, but eventually they're going to get it. And here's what Jesus does. He, he, he takes a towel that they have there, a, a large towel like this. Oh, before I get to the towel, I'm sorry, he took off his outer garments, didn't he? So I'm going to take off just one outer garment right now. Don't freak out, just my sport coat. And... Uh, and so Jesus took off his outer garment, picture him taking off maybe his, his toga, and he takes a large towel, and we know it's large because he wraps it around his 38-inch waist. <laughs> and so Jesus takes this, that's in the margins, and so he takes his towel, and, and he wraps it around his waist, and then he does something that's really gonna blow the disciples away. He, he pours water into a basin, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet with this water and then wipes it with the towel. Now, if you've been a Christian for a little while, you might know why he would have done that, but many people might not. And so let me explain. 
In the culture back then, 2,000 years ago, they obviously didn't have paved roads, they didn't have automobiles, and so when people traveled, they mainly walked. Rich people might have a donkey or a horse, but they mainly walked, and they walked with a, a full dress on because of the hot sun in the Middle East, but their feet had sandals on. They usually didn't have closed toe shoes back then. And so imagine walking in the desert. You and I can relate to the desert all day long, and your feet would get awfully dirty. And so it was customary in a Middle Eastern home to, when you came in, to have your feet washed. But as you can imagine, your feet would be absolutely filthy. So this became known as a very dirty job. If Mike Rowe was alive in the first century, he would feature this on his show, Dirty Jobs, because nobody wanted to wash somebody else's feet, would you? And so it was the servants usually, they had indentured servants back then, in a home that would wash feet. In fact, it was such a lowly job that if you were a Hebrew servant, you wouldn't have to wash somebody's feet. Only Gentile servants would do that. I mean, you got to get the picture of what a dirty job this was. But Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples here. We know that nobody else is there because it's a private meeting. So the question is, who's going to wash their feet? Now, here's where it gets really rich. Uh, Luke tells us that right at the moment where Jesus goes over to the basin, the disciples are having an argument. And you know what they're arguing about? Who is the greatest among them? So obviously, these guys are not thinking who's going to wash the feet. They're thinking who's the greatest. And so Jesus takes up this towel and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And that's why he does it initially, because it's what you do for hospitality in the Middle East. Now, he gets to Peter, and Peter is not impressed. In fact, Peter asks in verse 6, do you wash my feet? The emphasis in the Greek is on you and my. And Jesus says to him, you don't get what I'm doing now, Peter, but afterward, that's key, he says, afterward, you will. And the reason that this is key is because this is the first hint that Jesus gives here that it's not about really foot washing. That foot washing is an object lesson. It's a symbol of what is about to come of which afterward, Peter and the disciples will get it. Give me a head nod that you understand what Jesus is doing here. And that afterward, almost surely, in fact it does, refer to the cross. He's saying, after I go to the cross, you're going to get what all of this is about. But Peter doesn't get it. He says to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus says that if he is not washed by him, that Peter has, and I quote, no share with me. And again, you got to be going, well, that sounds awfully harsh, right? I mean, just washing his feet. And you're saying, if you don't let me do what a servant would do, or if you don't let me receive what a servant would normally do from you, I have no share with you. But you see, Jesus is trying to get Peter's eyes off the actual foot washing thing to what the object lesson is, and it's simply this. Look how one commentator says it. He says the external washing was intended to be a picture of a spiritual cleansing. See, Jesus is cluing us in here to the fact that the foot washing is all about what Jesus is about to do on the cross. 
And what did Jesus do on the cross? He atoned for our sins. He bore our sins upon himself so that we might be forgiven. Don't miss this, gang. Foot washing is not just a symbol of humility. I mean, that's what it meant in that culture back then, but Jesus isn't doing it for that reason. He's washing the feet as a symbol of what he is about to do for them on the cross. And the tie is this, that as water washes dirt from the feet, so Jesus' blood shed on the cross can wash away our sins. That was a great spot for an amen, so let's try that again. Jesus' blood can wash away our sins. That's the point of the foot washing here, without which, and maybe now it makes sense, we have no share with Jesus. Because as we're going to see in a second here, sin is very serious to God. And so the obvious point of this foot washing lesson is that sin needs forgiven just like a body needs to have dirt washed away after a long day travel. That's what Jesus is getting at here. But Peter still doesn't get it. He responds by saying, well, then wash my entire body. He misses the entire symbol and object lesson. So in verse 10, let's read it again. Jesus just lays it out. And it says, then Jesus said to him, Peter, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And then he looks at Peter and says, and you are clean. Whoa. Obviously, it doesn't mean that Peter has taken a bath because he hasn't taken a bath yet. They just had a, a long trip from the Mount of Olives. He's saying to Peter that because of you hanging out with me, because of you believing in me, because of my impending death on a cross for your sins, you are completely clean. The object lesson is made. The point is made. And here is the point, gang. It's one of your first of two points, and that is that believers in Jesus, and I'm gonna use Jesus' words here, are completely clean due to Christ's atoning sacrifice. Uh, folks, listen, this is the entire point of the opening salvo of John 13. It's the entire point of Jesus' foot washing lesson. It's the entire point of Jesus coming to earth. And I know what some of you are tempted to think because I've been with you way too long. You're thinking right now, I get it, Jamie. Jesus died for a cross for my sins. You say it a lot. I get it. Here's my point today. I'm not sure you do. I'm not sure that we really understand that our biggest problem is a sin problem and that if you've embraced Jesus, you have a reason to get up every day and rejoice no matter what other problems you might have. See, that's the point here, gang. We live in a world today in which Christians, I love you guys, I hang around you all the time, but I'm telling you, we, we, we make our everyday temporal problems into bigger than they are, and we make them into our biggest problem. You ever notice Christians who do that? Maybe you do. Because our lives are filled with lots of problems. I mean, you got work problems, family problems, kid problems, emotional problems, financial problems, societal problems, 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 problems. We all got them. And they consume so much of our time and attention and it's because of this that many Christians act like their daily, temporal, this side of heaven problems are their biggest problems. And what you need to know is that that's a lie from the pit of hell. It is. That's exactly where the devil wants you. 
God knows better. He says better. He says that our immediate pressing problems are nothing compared to the eternal problem that all of humanity has with him because of our sin. And this is the right time for a quick discussion on sin. See, this is what our world doesn't understand today. Not only are we all fallen, I guess our world gets that, but sin is a really serious problem with God. Do you all understand that? And the reason is beautiful why sin is a problem with God. You ready for this? The reason that sin is a problem with God is because he is so good, he is so holy, he is so perfect, he is so other than us, that as the Bible says, light can, has nothing to do with darkness. He cannot exist in the realm of sin. He is that good, that holy, that awesome, that he can't even be, for the moment, one moment, in the presence of sin. And yet the problem is you and I have sin. So put two and two together. If God can't be in the presence of sin, and you are a sinner, and you are, then God can't be in the presence of you. And God knows that that's our biggest problem. And because of that problem, if something is not done about it, then we will spend eternity away from him. And I think we would all agree that spending eternity away from God due to our sin is a bigger problem than credit card debt. Give me a head nod that y'all get that, right? That's why I say it's bigger than any of our temporal problems. It's a bigger problem than your unsatisfactory job or even your failed marriage or your rebellious kid or your troubled emotions. Don't get me wrong. Those are all serious problems. I got them, you got them. We deal with them every day. God gets that. But he also says, please understand this. None of those are your biggest problem, not by a long shot. Sin that separates you eternally from God. Now that is a problem. And knowing this, maybe now the light will go on in your head, Jesus engages in foot washing. Why? To bring home to them that God is in the habit of washing feet. God is in the habit of washing away sin through the forgiveness that Jesus offers us on the cross. And when Jesus says, you gotta let this sink in, church, that if you embrace him and believe that, you are completely clean. Then that means every day you can wake up and even if your job stinks, your marriage isn't what you hoped it was, your kids aren't listening to you, you're depressed a little bit, anxious a little bit because your body is filled with emotions that you don't like. Even if all of that is true, you still can rejoice because as Jeremiah says, his mercies are new every morning because of what Jesus has done for you. Amen, amen. And so that's why this foot washing thing is so important for us to get because it's Jesus' way of saying, take heart, Christian, you're forgiven. And might I add real quickly before we move on, because we're gonna switch gears here in a second, that only forgiveness counts. In other words, we live in a world today that says, okay, God's mad at us because of our sin. I just think I'll repent of all my sin. Let me ask you a question. Can you repent of all of your sin to the point that you could please a completely holy and all good God, yes or no? No. See, I mean, who would believe that? I'm glad God doesn't say that. God says, you know what, you can't do it. The only option you have is to allow me to forgive you, allow me to wash you. 
And again, it should be the most freeing thing we ever hear because God doesn't say you have to be perfect and measure up to him because he knows you can't. He says, I'd rather forgive you. And that's what he offers us in Jesus. Now, with that understanding, let me pull us back a little bit and talk about the messiness of forgiveness because what I see also contained in this story here, and we're gonna spend the remainder of our time on this, and you'll see why it's so important here in a minute, is that our forgiveness through Jesus, I would submit to you, is still a messy process. You're saying, well, how's that? I think this is seen both in the word picture of the washing of the feet as well as in Jesus' words in verse 10. And let me show you what I see here. In verse 10, I'm gonna read it for you again, but I'm highlighting something different here. It reads like this. It says, Jesus said to him, Peter, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. And the question that I need you to wrestle with right now, because it's confused a lot of smart people over the years, is why does Jesus add except for his feet? I mean, if you think about it, gang, that kind of confuses the point, at least initially. I mean, the question I have for you is, are we completely clean through Jesus' shed blood, or aren't we? Because he says that we're completely clean, and then says to Peter, you are clean, but then he adds this caveat, except for the feet. And again, when you do a deep dive this and think about it, you think, well, what does he mean by that? That sounds kind of confusing. I mean, if I was Jesus and I wanted to make this point, and I'm glad I'm not because he has a reason for what he's doing here, I, I, I think it would have been easier if he would have done the foot washing like this, like brought somebody up and just dumped it all over their head and said, because of my shed blood for you, man, it's like taking a full shower and you're completely clean. But Jesus doesn't do that. Think of the image. He, he, he washes their feet. And his point is, is that, is that, my blood washes your entire body, but your feet are still going to get dirty every now and then. And, and the question we need to ask is, is what is that about? And to answer that question, I'm going to do so by asking you another question. And I want you all to participate with this question. I want you all to raise your hand, either yes or keep your hand down for no, Cactus, Mountain Valley, Chapel and Venue, and watching online, I want you guys to participate with this as well. And if you don't participate, I'm gonna know it because I'm watching you. So don't weasel out of this one. I need you all to engage with me on this. You'll see why in a second. And here's my question for you. Have you personally ever been forgiven for something that you know deep down you're probably gonna do again? Raise your hand if that's you. <laughs> Just about every one of you. The rest of you need to see me afterward. <laughs> see, I think all of us have, whether it's with God, whether it's with a spouse, whether it's with a dear friend, uh, whether it's with a parent, I think that we have all been forgiven at times for something that we have done, and this is a scandal of forgiveness, in the back of our minds, even as we're being forgiven, we think to ourselves, I just might do this again. You don't want to. You might not even be planning on it. 
but you know enough about your fallen nature. You've read Romans chapter 7. If you haven't, you can read it later, in which Paul says, the things I want to do, I end up not doing, and the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. You've read enough of that. You've been around the block enough to know that you're being forgiven for something right now that you very well might do again. If you're a betting man, you bet you are going to do it again. And so it's like my friend who's been forgiven by God for getting into a lot of debt. And my friend went to God and said, please, God, forgive me for that. God did. Over time, my friend got out of debt, learned to manage their money well. But it happened again. Or how about my other friend who, who's been forgiven by God for losing it with their kids, knowing that they're probably going to lose it again? Or how about the first person that's been forgiven by God for looking at images that you shouldn't look at? And you go to God and you ask for his forgiveness and because he loves you, he says, of course I forgive you and you, you know you just might do it again. And again, we don't want to. We don't even try to, but we do. And the scandal is we even know that we very well might do it again in the very act of being forgiven for the first time. And the question I have for you is how pathetic is that? I think the New International Version in their rendering of John 13, 10 kind of nails it. They have Jesus saying it this way, that those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet because their whole body is implicitly already clean. Maybe that's what Jesus is getting at here. That he knows that he has forgiven us for our sin through his shed blood on the cross. But he also knows that as we go along in life, our feet are going to get dusty again. Maybe even dusty with the same dust that we just washed off. And that he's willing to continue to wash us. F.B. Meyer has the same interpretation of what's going on here. He says it this way in his commentary on John. He says, we have been washed once definitely and irrevocably. We have been bathed in the crimson tide that flows from Calvary, but we need a daily cleansing. Our feet become soiled with the dust of life's highways. Please latch on to this because we're going to make sense of this in a minute. I, I think it's a dilemma that we all have who are believers in Christ, and that is that we are forgiven, we are bathed, we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, but then we go out and we sin some more, and we even sin in the same way that we were just forgiven for. And the question that you and I need to wrestle with is what do we do with this? I mean, the rest of the world calls us hypocrites, and you guys know I try to defend us a lot in that, but on this one, I don't know about you, I have no, I have no defense. The fact that you and I have been forgiven of so much, but there's some areas in our life that we're just stuck in, and Jesus knows that, so he tells us about this foot-washing thing here, and the question is, what are we to do with that? with this scenario in which we sin, get forgiven, but then go out and sin again, even in the same area. I want to answer this question by noting what many believers do end up doing, which I'm going to suggest to you are not the things that God wants us to do. But these are things that I've seen believers do and myself do over the years that I think don't help the issue at all. Four things I've noticed that we do in response to repeated sin, even over the same offense of which we've already been forgiven for. But the first thing we do is that we grovel in guilt and shame. You ever done that? 
It goes like this. You say, God, I did it again. I did it again. I can't believe what a hypocrite I am. They're all right if they only knew I'm a mess and I put on a good front, but if they only knew, but you see, and I can't believe it, I'm a worm, I'm no good, I'm not getting any better. And before you know it, we're spiraling down in guilt and shame. Maybe it's just me. You guys ever experienced that? You spiral down in guilt and shame. And here's what you know. It feels good at the time because you're kind of paying a little bit of penance, which we'll get to in a minute. The only problem is Satan has you right where he wants to when you're doing that. Because it's all about you and it's all about yourself and it's all about your shame and your guilt and you're not really focused on God. You're just wallowing in, in that muck. And the scriptures say God doesn't want you doing that. And so that's the first thing we do. The second thing we do is we engage in what I call acts of penance, Protestant style. Now, you gotta go with me on this. I I say Protestant because if you come from a Catholic background, as my wife does, you know that Catholics have a formal system of penance that Protestants reject. But here's the uncanny thing. We still do it. I mean, we don't have a formal system of penance, but I see many Christians, when they're stuck in their sins and need forgiveness once again, they say this. They say, okay, God, I gotta make up for this one. I'm gonna tithe a little extra dough this week. I'm gonna go to a Bible study. I'm gonna be nice to that jerk in the cubicle next to me. And to top it all off, I will spend time with the wife watching Lifetime for Women. That should do it. (laughs) Honestly, you laugh, but that's what we do. We, we try to make up for it by being extra good and extra. Let me ask you, do you think God accepts that? Do you think God says, oh gosh, well good, I'm glad you're extra good this week and so I you know, call it a deal. That, that doesn't happen that way. And then the third thing that we do, and every, even if you didn't do the first two things here, I promise you you've done this third one. You promise never to do it again. You're like a three-year-old, aren't you? I mean, you sin again, you're like, oh God, I did it again. I promise, I promise, I won't do it again. The line is drawn now, I'm not doing that again. What's the only problem with that? You end up doing it again. And then you're really in trouble. Because once you've done these three things long enough in response to your your sin that you can't seem to get over, eventually you're gonna do the fourth thing that a lot of Christians do. And that is that you disengage with God. Let me be clear. You don't become an atheist. You still believe in him. You just think he's really ticked at you and doesn't want anything to do with you until you get your act together. And so you say, you know what? I'll just sort of step over here, God, (laughs) because obviously you don't want me on your team. And and before you know it, you're not praying. You're not having quiet times anymore. You don't even come to church. We haven't seen you in a little while. (laughs) And it's because you're, you're distant. I see it all the time. I'll say to somebody, you know, where, where's Tim? Where's Tim been? And, and, and they'll say, well, Tim's kind of struggling right now. And, and I sit there and go, well, man, when Tim's struggling, where should he be? In church, which is why we're doing a series on a beautiful mess, because we want you guys to know it's okay to come to church when you're a mess. But sometimes when you're a mess long enough, you just don't even want to go to church anymore. Any of you can relate? I see this happen to a lot of sincere Christ followers, and it's what we do. Don't miss this. In this, in this irrational, it's what we do with the messiness of divine forgiveness. I mean, you wouldn't do this if Jesus didn't forgive you already, right? I mean, Howard Stern doesn't have this problem. Mick Jagger doesn't have this problem. Miley Cyrus doesn't have this problem because they're not even in the ring. But you and I are in the ring, and we've been forgiven And so as a result of that, when we sin again after being forgiven, especially if we sin in the same way, these are the responses we have, and they make an absolute mess of it. 
So what do we do? The answer is going to blow you away. It's so simple, and yet it's missed by so many because it's so humbling to have to do this. What you do is you go back to the basin. And you go back to the basin, and you allow a Savior who is on bended knee before you to wash your feet again. And some of you, I know how you think, you're so hard on yourself and you're thinking, again, again? I mean, how many times do I have to go back to the basin? What's the answer to that? Jesus said seven times, 70 times. And for those of you who are mathematicians, the answer is not 490. He's giving us that as a symbol, saying as many times as it takes. That your first response is not to take matters into your own hands and grovel or promise not to do it again or engage in Protestant penance or even disengage from God, but humble yourself and come back to the basin and let him wash you. Because here's Jesus' logic. He knows something that you haven't gotten yet. And that even though it feels humbling to have to be washed again, because again, as you're being washed, you're thinking, I might do it again, I might do it again, I might do it again. He goes, I know, I know, but let me wash you. Because what he knows, that until you are washed, you will never have the freedom and the power to repent. And some of you are saying, but yeah, I've been washed before and it hasn't led to repentance. Let him wash you again. Because sometimes it takes a lot of washing for us to get where God wants us to be. And in my life, I've been at this 35 years, and my wife can attest to things like my anger, my impatience, some of the things that drive me crazy that I thought I'd be over after 35 years of doing this. I have to go back to the basin and allow him to wash me. And when I do that, I'm washed and I'm clean. And only then do I stand any chance of becoming the better man that I believe God wants me to be. 1 John 1.9 couldn't be more clear. This passage was written to believers. These are people who were saved way after the gospel of John was written. But John's the same author here. Look at what he says here to believers way down the road. He says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to say these two words with me, cleanse us. Say it again. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Same words in John 13. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to wash you. But you gotta stop taking matters into your own hands. You gotta stop thinking you know better. You have to humble yourself and allow him to wash you. I'm gonna wrap up with a story before we go to our elder fund offering that's kind of a modern day parable, but it's a true story from my life that I think you will like. Uh, the story has to do with my uh, hometown of Chagrin Falls, Ohio. Some people say, tell us more about Chagrin. Uh, Chagrin Falls is a beautiful little New England town outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And when Kim and I lived there before we moved here for six years, we were back in our hometown pastoring, uh, we bought a, a house three miles outside of the village limits. 
It was for financial reasons. We couldn't afford to live in the village. It's very pricey. And so we bought a, a little farmhouse. This is a Google Maps shot of it right here. We bought this little farmhouse here on one of the most beautiful streets in all of Geauga County called Music Street, ironically. And, and, and Music Street is running right here. And, and this is my neighbor's lot and my lot. These were very long, deep lots, about 800 feet deep, about 120 feet wide, roughly two acres, and they were old horse farms built back in the 1950s. And both of these houses had been uh, redone over the years, so they were beautiful little houses, you know, that had original hardwood floors and cinder block basements and new siding and roof, and they were very, very presentable. But part of the problem was, and you'll see where I'm going with this in a minute, is that there were barns in the way back. You can see my 25 by 25 foot barn back here, and then there was a field in behind that, and they were old horse barns, and they were falling apart. And so most of the people got it, that the house looks beautiful from the road. See where I'm going with this? The house looks cleansed and beautiful. But in the backyard, where only the neighbors could see, there was a beat-up old barn. And what a lot of us did is that over time, we tried to fix up our barn. When I first bought the house, I painted the barn, and then I redid the door, and I turned this old horse barn into a dirt bike barn, and that was a lot of fun, and I bought a bunch of dirt bikes and go-karts for the kids and, and tried to make my barn presentable, but my neighbor had other thoughts. Now, you're going to notice here, might be hard to see, this is my neighbor's house, a beautiful house. This is where his barn was right here. You can see the scorched earth, and you're wondering, what's that about? I'll never forget the day. My neighbor, we'll call him Bob. Uh, Bob hated his barn. I, I, I mean, his house was beautiful, but his barn was really old and falling apart. And he couldn't forgive himself. See where I'm going with this? For having such an awful barn. Even though I said to him, we forgive you, the neighbors forgive you, God forgives you. He understands that your barn is falling apart. Bob wouldn't accept any of that. And I'll never forget the day that I came home from church, it was on a Sunday, and I rounded the corner on Music Street, and true story, the flames were 30 feet high. The smoke was over 100 feet high. And I knew right away, do you remember this, Kim? I knew what he had done. He had taken a match to his barn. And he lit that thing on fire, and because it was a 25 by 25 foot barn, two stories, and it used to have hay in it, that thing went up like a cinder. I mean, it just went right up like a matchbox. The only problem is, that's illegal to do in most places, including Geauga County. So as I rounded the corner, true story, there was four fire trucks out in front of his house from three different municipalities, and they were pouring water on this half-burnt barn. I couldn't even get into my driveway. And so they put this barn out. They gave him a big hefty fine because you can't do that. And that night I'm sitting on my back porch looking at this half-burnt barn. And I said to Kim, it's a lot worse now. <laughs> I mean, before it was just a barn falling down. Now it's a half-burnt barn and it's a real eyesore and he made what he thought was a mess even worse. You see, here's my question for you. Uh, what barn do you have in the backyard of your life right now? I don't mean a real barn. 
I'm just talking about if you're a believer, you've been forgiven, your house is really nice, it looks really good, your body's been washed, but Jesus says you're gonna get dusty feet, now let's transfer that to barns. What barn is in your backyard right now that maybe no one else sees, but you see it, the neighbor sees it? I want you to get that in your mind right now. All of you have it. Don't fight me on this. I'm not gonna make you share it with anybody. Just get in your mind right now. What's your barn What is it that you've been forgiven for already, but it's still ugly, it's still there, and you want it gone? Get that in your mind. And then here's my encouragement to you. Don't light a match to that barn. See, a lot of Christians are good at lighting matches. We grovel in guilt and shame. We engage in Protestant penance. We then disengage with God. We promise never to do it again. There's all these bad things you can do, and every one of them is lighting a match to it. Here's what you need to hear today if you don't hear anything else. That's only going to make it worse, because eventually that thing's not going to burn down by all those attempts. Someone's going to put it out, and then it's going to look really ugly, uglier than it was before. What God says to you is, let me forgive you for that barn. (laughs) Let me wash you once again, in light of that barn. And then watch this, because some of you are saying, no, it sounds too easy. No, over time, God says, once we've learned to accept that barn and, and, and forgive you for that barn, he's in the business of, over time, dismantling that barn one plank at a time. See, that's what my neighbor should have done. If he didn't want the barn, he should have just taken the thing down, but it seemed too ominous, it seemed too big. He'd rather just light the thing on fire. But that wasn't the answer. The answer was, let's take it down one plank at a time, which is eventually what he had to do. And see, I wonder if it's not the same for you. Eugene Peterson years ago wrote a wonderful little book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And see, that's what sanctification is. That's what your growth in Christ is. It's a long obedience, moving in the same direction. It's just that you're not very patient. You want it gone now. You want to light the match now. And what God says, and this is the power of foot washing, is let me wash your feet now. Let me bathe you now. Let me forgive you now. Because if you start there, there's a good chance you can start dismantling that barn. Until you do, you're just engaging in an adventure in missing the point. He loves you. He cares about you. He forgives you as you embrace him in Jesus. Some of you embraced him years ago. It's time to embrace him once again and allow him to wash your feet. Here's how I wanna close our time together before we hand it off to the venues and campuses for our elder fund offering. And that's that I wanna take just a few minutes before I pray and I wanna give you a chance to pray to God. Not out loud, very quiet. We're gonna have about a minute or so of quiet in this room and then at Cactus, Mountain Valley, Chapel, Venue, and online. And I want to just have some quiet here. And what I hope you do is that you go to God. And let's do 1 John 1, 9 together. Let's confess our sins. Let's confess that barn in our backyard to him once again. And just confess it. Don't make any promises. Don't do something that you can't do. Just lay it out before him. Confess your sin and let him wash you. And let's see what he does this week as he starts maybe to work on your life plank by plank. Let's engage in some prayer now, some quiet for just about a minute or so.
Father God, we live in a culture today that underestimates the power of divine forgiveness. Many would see it as cheap. They would see it as an out. They would see it as not enough. But when we understand that forgiveness came to us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, through his bearing our sin upon himself, God, we can hardly call it cheap. And so, Lord, to come back to the water once again, to be cleansed by you once again, to have our feet washed is not a trite thing. And, Lord, some of us have been here seven times, 70 times, God, and I thank you that you welcome us back. I thank you that as we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's what some of us need here today. And God, I pray that as we experience your washing again, that God, this would now be about a long obedience in the same direction. That God, the, that the response to cleansing would be to pick ourselves back up, to walk with you once again and allow you to create in us a pure and clean heart. And Lord, we know that if we fall again, we're gonna come right back to you again and receive your cleansing as many times as it takes. Lord, make us more righteous, make us more holy, make us more like your son Christ. But Lord, make us also realize that it's from the seedbed of forgiveness that the growth in our life occurs. And I am, for one, am grateful for that. Thank you that you wash our feet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.